The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, traditional custodians of Jubagali, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honour the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities past and present. Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. Placing a personal story in the public sphere is a powerful and transformative act, liberating the storyteller and also giving the listener a deeper, more empathetic understanding. Dai Lee, Nadi Simpson, Dinesh Palapana, Antoinette Latouf and Steph Tisdell take the stage at Antidote 2022 to tell us what happened to them. Stories that are tragic, hilarious, engaging and life-changing. We'll learn not just what happened to them, but how it shaped who they are and who they've become. This event was recorded live at the Sydney Opera House in September 2022. Hello. Hello, everyone. How are we all doing? My name is Steph Tisdell, uh, and welcome to It Happened to Me. Um, it's, it's so good to have you guys here. I'm really excited to be part of this because storytelling is about perspective. Right, I think that the future is shades of grey. I don't mean 50 shades of grey, I mean like just generally the future is about stepping away from um, binaries and blacks and whites and it's about stepping into that space in between. And I think the only way that we can do that effectively is to learn every different perspective we can possibly get our hands on. And that's why storytelling is such an incredible art and we have some amazing storytellers here with us this afternoon. Um, before I go on, I do also want to just acknowledge um, the traditional lands in which we stand, the lands of the, the Gadigal people. I was really lucky recently, I did a, I did a um, little filming bit over at Barangaroo over there, and I got to learn a little bit more about the history here. And this whole bay, it's amazing, this whole bay used to be where the women went to go fishing. And so they'd have their little fishing boats, they'd have fires on their fishing boats, they'd sing, they'd laugh, they'd have their babies out there. And um, when, the, when the water, when the sun hits the water and it looks like glitter on the water, they call that gilly-gilly. And I just love that. Like, I love thinking about that this was quite a special place for women and, and, and coming together in a real family space. So whenever you look out at the bay, it's beautiful for what it is right now, but it used to be a very different kind of beautiful before. Um, now, like I said, I just think, you know, I believe that everybody has a drive to do what they do and sometimes we think that, that certain types of drive are more um, acceptable than others. And I think what's great about having all these different people is that it doesn't matter what you're driven by. Success is how you perceive it. Success is how other people perceive you. And at all times, storytelling is generous. And so I would love to announce our first speaker. Um, it's Di Lee. Now, Di Lee arrived in Australia in the 70s uh, uh, with her mother and two younger sisters um, who left uh, refugee camps in Southeast Asia um, after leaving war-torn Vietnam. After becoming a journalist, she set up the Fairfield City Champion newspaper. She was elected to the Fairfield City Council and became deputy mayor, which I can't even believe that being a mayor is something you can just do. Um, <laughs> like, I forget that that's a job. Anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, and she is now the, uh, the, the newest uh, independent for Fowler. Uh, she was elected in May 2022. She has a focus on local health infrastructure, NDIS funding, housing affordability and more. But... Um, Please get excited, clap your hands, and welcome Di Lee. Thank you very much, Steph. Before I begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land upon which we gathered this morning, um, the um, Gadigal people of the Yorona Yora Nation, sorry. English is my second language after all. Uh, and um, the pay respects to the elders of the past, present and emerging. So it happened to me. I, uh, as Steph mentioned, I got elected in May 2022 this year as the first ever uh, independent member for a very uh, safe seat, Labor seat in southwest of Sydney. So how did I get there?
It was a very um, challenging, difficult, interesting, and very um, tumultuous journey. Uh, as Steph referred, I left Vietnam when I was very young, at the age of seven, uh, escaping uh, war-torn Vietnam with my mother. For those of you, you who remember the Vietnam War, it was the last days of the Vietnam War. And um, that image that you probably have seen on our television screen of helicopters and people running, screaming. At times when I look at those historical um, documentaries, I often wonder if I'm one of those kids in that film running because it was around that time that we ran. Uh, and um, my mother dragged myself, my two younger sisters, and we were all running amidst the scream and cries of women in particular and children and scrambled, I remember scrambling onto a boat. And, um, and the one moment when I turned back to look at my birth country, I just remember seeing this huge um, cloud of black and red smoke in the distance. Um, for a seven-year-old, you just were very confused. You did not know what was going on. Um, nobody told you what was happening except um, that there was a war. Um, and, and I remember looking back and I thought, um, you know, of course, my, my relatives were still there, my grandparents were still there, everybody was still there. And here I was on this boat with hundreds uh, of other strangers. And um, we ended up in the camps in the Philippines. Um, I didn't know where it was, but of course later on we found out it was the Philippines because there was an American base there. And my father had worked for the American um, side. That's why we escaped, because the communists uh, we were told that the communists, if they caught us, we would be killed. We stayed there for a couple of years in displaced people camps, as they were called, and um, we waited for my father because we were supposed to be resettled in the US. That never happened because my father never turned up. Um, and in these displaced people's camps, there were mainly women and children because a lot of the men were, you know, in, in the Vietnam War. Um, my mother um, thought one day she decided to take the, us, the girls, and she said, we're going to go on a picnic. And uh, I said, okay, so we went on a picnic, and we went to this beach side. We got no idea where it was. Uh, and uh, it was daytime, and we had food and everything with other few Vietnamese people around there. And by the end of the night, it was very dark, and we were still having a picnic. So I thought, why are we having a picnic? It's very, very dark, and the food is finished, and there was a little bonfire. And, and it was really dark, and there's only a few of us, about 30-something of us left over, left there in, in this beach. Um, and then suddenly we were tapped to say, start walking. So we kind of followed some guy walking behind this big rock um, and walk into the water, wade into the water, and it was, I remember, freezing cold, did not know what we were doing again, um, got pulled onto this boat, and there were about 35 people on this boat, 35 Vietnamese, who, including my mother and then including us kids, uh, felt that we weren't processed in the Philippines. And back in those days, you know, refugees sitting in camps for years, there were two years, not knowing what's going to happen, happened to our lives. So I think they decided to thought that to go on a little another boat journey. Uh, and this second boat journey nearly killed us because it was a small fishing boat. Um, the, the, the captain actually was just a mechanic, so he didn't know how to navigate this boat. Uh, but it, I remember going out into the ocean and, um, you know, I think about the third or fourth day, we encountered this huge storm huge storm, um, and, uh, you know, we had plastic tarps on us, it was all covered, uh, and my mother said to us, she said, make sure, she said to me, make sure you hold on to your sister in this plastic canister, and if this boat um, tipped, tips over, you make sure you hold on to your sister in this plastic canister until you find me and find us in the ocean. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever been out there in the middle of the ocean with nothing, with just a horizon, and it was pitch dark and was pouring down rain. And I remember my face, because the boat was rocking so hard, my face, I felt like my face was touching the ocean. And I thought, there's no way I could find, would find you 
There's no way we would find one another. We would die because none of us could swim. So, um, so my mother kept on praying and prayed and prayed and uh, with her rosary beads. And luckily for us, the next day, the storm subsided and it was so peaceful. Um, and then eventually we had a, a, a patrol, a Hong Kong patrol boat that pulled us into Hong Kong camps where we get, again, got processed. Uh, we were stayed in the camp for another year. So it's in total three years of my life. Um, I had no proper education. Um, when I got to Hong Kong, I was, able, I was, I think, about 10, but I was able to get a work card to say that I was 16, and I went into a factory to work to make clothes, um, to make watches, um, to save some money so that when we eventually get the freedom that we all were seeking, that we'll be able to rebuild and start our lives. So um, we, we were, I worked very hard because um, my mother, you know, that some of the kids in the camps were sent out to work in the factories, uh, and I was one of them. Um, but eventually we were then uh, accepted to be resettled. And I remember my mother coming out to meet me at the gate of Hong Kong. Um, it's called the Freedom Camp. Uh, she said, you know, we got accepted to go to this big island. Um, there's no one around this island except this island, but it has the best education system in the world. You know, nobody knew where Australia was. Everybody wanted in the camps wanted to go to the US or France or Canada, but nobody knew where Australia was. So for us, education was so important. And for my mother, it was important to have, to give us a, a, a you know education. So we got resettled here in Australia at the end of '79, arriving here, and I remember stepping out of Kingford Smith Airport, feeling at peace, feeling so grateful that we've got this opportunity now and feeling we've got freedom. And importantly, no military people walking around. Um, and I felt that there were no more wars. And the one thing I remember when we got into the hostel was that I, I thought, you know, I believe that, that there will be no more wars now, that wars have ended because Vietnam, you know, we've lost Vietnam and it's now we've got to this country, there'll be no more wars. And, and so we, you know, we rebuilt the help, with the help of the St. Vincent uh, Ladies, St. Vincent the Poor Ladies Society. Um, and then I grew up, uh, went to school, learned English as fast as I could, uh, and, uh, and then, you know, moved up to Cabramatta, where I later became a journalist, uh, setting up the Fairfield City Champion, which is actually last week folded, uh, which is, I thought to myself, I'm going to do a little story about that because I helped set up that paper. It's a, it's a Fairfax community newspaper. Got into the ABC, work at the ABC, um, trying to figure out what it, how I can give back, how I can give back to this society that has given my, myself and my family the opportunity to, you know, rebuild our lives. And uh, my mother, you know, worked as a, uh, she cleans you know, back in those days, cleaning houses, working in the kitchen, cooking. Uh, I also helped her with cleaning houses and um, to make a bit of money to help us through um, our, our education uh, and pay for ourselves. Because back in those days, there weren't any uh, support around that would give us the, uh, you know, support that we needed, that, that a lot of um, refugees uh, and migrants today have. Back in those days, it's all uh, on your own, basically. Um, and then after, the, after um, nearly 20 years, nearly 20 years in the communications, filmmaking and journalism world, I stepped into politics in 2008. Um, made a huge impact in Cabramatta and then continued on. And 14 years on, um, you know, kept on persisting, pers being persistent um, in trying to make a difference in that community. Uh, got, got a car park. The car park, uh, you know, how I got into politics was because there was no car parking in Cabramatta. <laughs> Believe it or not. So that's what got me into politics. You know, the small, the small um, needs of a community like Cabramatta, they wanted a car park that they've advocated or they've been asking for for decades. And suddenly when I came along, I thought, all we needed was a car park and that would be delivered. And I thought, really? So I was very vocal and obviously having journalism um, communication background, I was able to advocate for that car park. Um, I got elected onto council in 2012 and then by, I think, 2018, we were able to build a car park there um, and now we've upgraded another car park and 
and the council said to me, that's it, we've built your car park now. <laughs> so stop advocating, that was a $40 million car park. Um, so, so the community, you know, used to call me the queen of the car park. <laughs> uh, but, you know, now I'm obviously advocating for our um, hospital. Uh, Fairfield Council, uh, Fairfield Hospital has got no Wi-Fi, which I discovered in 2019, that doesn't allow for um, the, um, you know, medical equipment to talk to one another. So I've, I've, I'm advocating for that now. But that's, that must, that's, that's me, how I got here. Um, it's all about, is that through, um, you know, my passion for my community. I, I really live and breathe my community. Um, I just love this diverse community where I grew up. Um, you know, a, a large proportion of our community are from low socioeconomic backgrounds. 70% uh, of the population they speak um, a language other than English um, and have very low income. Um, and, you know, they're, they're like me. Like, and, and I suppose, uh, like many of us in this room who've, who've parents have migrated here or, um, or grandparents. So we are a, a country of migrants and, and refugees and that's what Australia is about. And I've always said that Australia is the best United Nation in the world. There should not be a United Nation because we are the United Nation. <laughs> and we have the great talent here that we can actually utilise and capitalise and, 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 you know, um, lift that up, create a platform for all of our talent here to help bring peace to the world. And that's what I hope that I will be able to achieve in my, in my um, you know, the next stage in my, in my life, which is at federal parliament. So thank you. I've got a couple of A's in school. Um, I don't know. That's so impressive. Thank you so much for sharing that story, especially just being open enough to, to tell us what that really looked like. I imagine that those things are difficult to talk about, but what that gives us to hear that is probably a new element of gratitude. I think, it, um, I think it's really important for us to recognise where our privilege lies, uh, and that's a big word at the moment, and, and as it should be, I think it makes a huge difference to how we interact with the world when we understand the inherent privileges that we're born with. So give her another round of applause. That was absolutely Thank you. Also, I would love a car park in my suburb in Brisbane. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's in a different... We'll talk. Um, our, um, our next speaker um, is just ridiculous. I'll be honest. Um, get him off. He's a, you know... No, he's too impressive. You know when you meet somebody, you're like, don't. Don't, don't dare be a nice person, but he is. It's disgusting. Um, no. <laughs> Um, Dinesh uh, Palapana uh, is, uh, he has an Order of Australia medal, obviously, so he's OAM as well. Um, just wait. Is a doctor, <laughs> lawyer to, come on, um, disability advocate and researcher. He became the first medical graduate with quadriplegia, a quadriplegia in Queensland, then the first graduate doctor with quadri quadriplegia to begin work in the state. He was the second graduating doctor with quadriplegia quadriplegia to start working clinically in Australia. He was awarded an Order of Australia medal in 2019 and was the 2021 uh, Queensland Australian of the Year. His memoir, Stronger, was published in July 2022. So, just silly. Um, <laughs> I, 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 say, um, I, said to him, I said to him backstage, is there anything you'd like me to say? And he went, oh, just don't mention how I'm the most handsome doctor in Australia. No. <laughs> Um, <laughs> here to tell us this story, please uh, welcome Dinesh. Thank you. Oh, thank you for the introduction. It's so kind. You know, one thing, um, I actually have a friend who owns a space company and I went to visit uh, last week and he's promised me to, that I'll be an astronaut in the next 10 years. Oh, so get lost. Gotta aim high, right? <laughs> you know, um, it's a huge honour to share the stage with uh, everyone here, amazing people. Uh, but I was reflecting on the title of this session, which is, It Happened To Me. I'm actually going to tell you about why I think it happened for me. So my perspective on life has changed. And the picture that you see in front of you was a big turning point in my life. I was uh, 
Every time I'm in Sydney, I'm just, I feel this sense of nostalgia. And I was looking out over the, over the water and just taking Sydney in before because uh, I wasn't born here. And Sydney is where we first landed when we came to Australia on my 10th birthday. I grew up in Sri Lanka. And I was growing up there when it was a time of war. It lasted three decades. And it was an ethnic war. And when I look around this room, there are so many different people here, happy, prospering peacefully, living together, not hating each other. And in amongst that political, in amongst that ethnic war, there was a political war as well. So 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 much death and suffering and corruption and poverty. When I was a kid in Sri Lanka, I saw people being burnt alive in piles of tires. We saw people who were beheaded. We saw people who were shot. We saw poverty. We saw suffering. It was hard to get into a school because all the principals wanted a bribe. And when I did get into a school, I went to school with kids who didn't have shoes. I have many shoes today, and I'm grateful. <laughs> but, you know, when I put on my shoes in the morning, I, uh, I think about how grateful I am to have a pair of shoes. They also don't get dirty anymore, which is really good. <laughs> so I grew up in a place of violence and poverty and struggle and suffering. And we landed here in 1994 when I turned 10. And coming to Sydney was incredible. It was just uh, such a special experience. And I could get into a school without having to play, pay a bribe. And there were so many different people at this school. And I'd never seen that kind of diversity ever before in my life. And the roads were amazing. And all the cars traveled in one direction. <laughs> and I went to these ginormous supermarkets, right? And, you know, this is now 28 years later. And every time I still go into a supermarket, I think, oh, my gosh, we can buy 20 different types of cheese in one place. You're going to take stock of that, right? Because it was hard to find a block of cheese when I was a kid. And it was a special treat when we could find it. So I've been so grateful to live in this country and to grow up here. Um, and I had every opportunity, right? But I think um, when I finished high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I, I hadn't found my purpose yet. And I think purpose is so important to us because it's purpose that helps us tick over. It's purpose that makes us happy, gives us energy to get up out of morning. And when I saw Di speak just before, her purpose, right? It's infectious. It energizes all of us. So I was talking to a room full of lawyers recently and I said, I had no purpose in my life, so I decided to become a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> when I finished high school. Uh, so I became a lawyer and um, uh, I went to law school and I became really depressed when I was in law school. And I think a part of that reason was because I just hadn't found myself yet. And when you have that kind of disconnect between your life and your person, it can lead to a time like that. And depression was such a difficult thing. My world was so grey and scary and low, and I was sad all the time, I was anxious. I got panic attacks and I couldn't experience the world like where I can see the colours and feel the sun and be happy and feel connected. And now I have a spinal cord injury and when it first happened it felt like I was a prisoner of my body. But here we are today and what I've realised is with depression, being a prisoner of my mind was far worse than being a prisoner of my body. Because today I feel free and energized and capable. But it also helped me find my purpose. And going through depression, I started to see a doctor. And that doctor changed my life. And that doctor changed my world. And when I came out of it, I realized suddenly I was alive again. And my mom likes to say that by helping one person, we might not change the world, but we will change the world for them. 
that philosophy has been such a powerful thing in my life, so I decided to become a doctor myself. I went to medical school and I was in this place where I felt purposeful and happy and I like I found my place in this world. But you know what? I think nature, it can take that away with a swipe of its hand, right? And this is what happened to me. I had a car accident on the 31st of January, 2010. I was driving down the highway and my car aquaplaned and had a rollover. It rolled and rolled and rolled front to back. It was the single most violent experience that I've ever had in my life. And when the car landed, I tried to get out. And when I reached for the door handle with my hand, my fingers weren't working anymore. And then I rested my hand back down on my leg. And I realized I couldn't feel my leg. And in fact, I couldn't feel anything below the chest. I can't even begin to tell you what that felt like. The horror of realizing that my life had changed forever and that it would never be the same again. I've learned two things from that experience. One is the very last thing I did before I got into the car that night was to give mom a hug a lot, my mom a hug. I gave her a big bear hug, took a couple of steps, jumped in the car and drove off. We have to hug the people that we love every day. And the other thing is carpe diem. You gotta make the most of the day. Today I work as a doctor in Australia's busiest emergency department. Every day I see people pass away. Every day I see people whose lives change forever. And I always wonder, were they happy? Did they wake up knowing that it was gonna be their last day on earth? Would they have done anything different? Did they seize the moment? God has seized the moment. I spent another eight months after that in hospital. I was on a ventilator initially. I couldn't lift my arms up. I struggled. And I had to learn how to breathe on my own, learn to eat, learn to use a wheelchair, learn how to get about in the community, painstakingly slow process. I spent another four years putting life back together. We lost everything. My mom and dad split up. We had to sell our home. We had no money. There were days in that process where mom and I didn't know where we were going to live the next day. It was just her and me. There were days when I didn't eat the whole day. There were days when I shivered, waiting for someone to get me a blanket. There were tough times. Eventually, I managed to come back to medical school. Eventually, I fought and I graduated from medical school. I fought for a job to become a doctor. Learn to understand that life with a disability has its own unique challenges. And here we are, 12 years after the accident. Today, I love life. I've had the opportunity to fight for all these things. And I've had the opportunity to understand that these things we have in this country, which I'm so grateful to live in, it's built on philosophies. It's not built on things. Sure, this is a beautiful place to be talking in the Opera House. But we have ideas like a fair go and justice and equity. These ideas that we have to fight for, that we have to believe in. And I've had the opportunity to fight for them as well. And that's why I'm sitting here today. I bought my own seat. <laughs> <laughs> but amongst all these things, I'm a happy person. And I'm one of the happiest people on earth. I don't think that this happened to me. I think it happened for me. And I'm thankful for that. Thank you so much, Dinesh.
I actually want to, if we can as well, just give a, a round of applause to your mum. Yeah. You've always got your shoes on display now too, which is exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty. You just ride on them like, get out of my way, <laughs> kick them. Uh, that's what I'd do, I reckon. Um, that was incredible. I, I just, I think that there's something I, I've heard that saying before in passing or on Instagram and memes. You know, it didn't happen to me; it happened for me. But really, hearing that story really let that sink in a little bit. And I think there's a lot of people who probably right now needed to hear that, just that sometimes the, uh, the total unpredictability of life is exactly what lands us where we need to be um, because you can't make decisions. Everything's too up in the air, you know? Um, you got me all kerfuffled. Uh, it's because of the handsome thing. Anyway. Um, <laughs> um, no, thank you, thank you so much for the story and, and you're a beautiful speaker as well, so really appreciate that. We're very, very just well-spoken. It's just too much, Dinesh. Like, what the hell? Um, our, our next speaker is, uh, is Antoinette Latouf. Is that correct? That is right. That's a fun... I like that name, Latouf. That's very... I want to dance to it. <laughs> go, go ahead. Go I just want to make a beat out of Latouf, Latouf. You know, anyway. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, Antoinette Latouf, Latouf is a media personality, <laughs> um, diversity advocate, author, a mother, uh, and she's really bad at reverse parking. You can speak to Di Lee, she can set up a special <laughs> car park for you. <laughs> it's all one big reverse. <laughs> uh, she's a multi-award winning journalist, uh, and she's the co-founder of Media Diversity Australia, a not-for-profit organisation working towards increasing cultural and linguistic diversity in the media Unreal. In 2019, Antoinette was named among AFR's 100 Women of Influence. In 2021, she was awarded a Women's Agenda Leadership Award and the BNT Women in Media's Champion of Change Award. Um, Antoinette regularly writes columns for the Sydney Morning Herald, The Guardian, Mamma Mia, she looks bloody great. It's too much. Please welcome Antoinette Latouf. Thank you so much for that introduction. Um, and before I begin, I absolutely have to acknowledge Dinesh and I thank you for sharing your stories, sharing your personal stories, but also using your journeys, your hardships to better Australian society. So thank you so much. I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the lands on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. I also think it's important to acknowledge Queen Elizabeth II's death. She opened the Opera House. I know this is a time of mourning for many in Australia, but it's also a very difficult time for First Nations people. Um, and it's a time when there's a lot of tone policing and grief policing, and people are telling other Australians how they ought to feel and how they ought to respond. Um, and what we've also seen with our media um, is a particular narrative by a media dominated by you know, white Australia, very unrepresentative, which is why I started Media Diversity Australia, which is, is, is struggling with those nuances, is struggling with First Nations or colonised perspectives because mo the monarchy and colonialism has been incredibly destructive for First Nations people. So I, wanted to, I just wanted to acknowledge that. This is not what my talk is about. Although... Um, what happened to me did have something to do with the way the media tells a very particular story. So it was mid-March 2019, and that I was at a suburban news agency and I was staring at a stack of newspapers. And at that moment, something happened to me that frightened me, and <laughs> anger, if not a hatred, erupted. And I was staring at this stack of newspaper and I thought to myself, Fucking white people, <laughs> right? And I'm sorry for the children in this room. Some of them are mine, so they're used to it. Um, and then the bloke behind the counter looked at me kind of like, like in disinterested, but it was a bit of a strange look, and at that point I realised I'd said it out loud. <laughs> 
And so you might be thinking, a few things you might have some questions, like, um, do you still buy newspapers, Antoinette? Um, but also, why are you being such an angry racist? Um, and it was that second question that really, that I struggled to answer. Because I was like, me? Like, how can I be? How can I be a racist? I'm a, I'm a woman of colour. I am a diversity and inclusion advocate. I'm an anti-racism campaigner. How can I be a racist? Surely not. I've even since then published a book about how not to be a racist knob called How to Lose Friends and Influence White People. <laughs> and it is. It's an anti-racism guide for all people in Australia, whether you're black, white, or somewhere in between, like me. And so, was that, so I've got to give you a little bit of context. It was two days after the Christchurch terror attacks, where Australia's very own born and bred white supremacist, Brenton Tarrant, entered those mosques in Christchurch with one purpose, to kill as many Muslims as possible. Yet, that didn't stop Australia's media from rolling out excuse-laden and empathetic, if not sympathetic, coverage. And it was this headline or this front page article that led to that prof like the profanity outburst at the, at the news agency. Here is a man who took a semi-automatic weapon and live-streamed the senseless slaughter of innocent women, children and men as they prayed. And these are the photographs that were chosen, a photograph of, of Tarrant with curly hair, a photograph of Tarrant at school and a photograph of Tarrant, which just looks like he's got a Facebook profile pic or something. Not the semi-automatic weapons he used, not the fact that he live-streamed, not the combat gear he was wearing, this. And the fact that the, the headline was from kid to killer. And I'm going to, I'm going to read the first line. That it was a blonde-headed kid from the bush who aspired to be a competitive athlete. And then other words popped out as I scanned the article, getting angrier and angrier. From kid to killer, that he had a love of fitness, that he has a curly-haired toddler, and that he came from a good Catholic family. I was like, oh, turns out, Fucking psychopaths can be cute toddlers. <laughs> Tarrant also left behind a 74-page document which detailed vitriolic, absolute hate and idealised, violent, anti-Semitic, anti-Islamic attacks. But hey, he had curly hair and was a fitness trainer that sometimes gave free personal training lessons. So that is what, that is what really angered me. But the tabloid trash didn't end there because the mirror put out that front page a couple of days after the attack as well. But compare the pair because this is something they prepared a couple of years earlier when there was another terror, terrorist attack. In the mirror article, they also talked about how sometimes he gave free personal training sessions. And that is what really angered me. As I left the shopping centre, and I walked, to, I walked to the car park, what I realised was that I wasn't... This is what happened to me. I wasn't just angry at tabloid journos. I wasn't just angry at Burton Tarrant. I wasn't angry at all journos and all the media. I was angry at all white people. There was an old man with his walker trying to get to his car, and I was like... <clears throat> I was just so angry, and that's what really frightened me, because something shifted inside of me that, actually, that really scared me that I couldn't explain. And then I took a step back, I tried to rationalise it, and I thought, oh, no, well, imagine if we did that to Abu Bakir Bashir, the mastermind behind the Bali bombing terror attack. So let me have a crack at how that would play out. The boy with the deep brown eyes had big teeth and a very warm smile. Families in the neighbourhood where he grew up said that he was a delightful boy who often shared his ice cream with the kids in the street. Never quite the athlete he turned to academia, which is why he studied. He started an Islamic boarding school for children. So how did this well-liked man with a good who had a good relationship with his father come to make such bad decisions? Like, it's outrageous, right? It's irrelevant, even. But still, along, by thinking along the lines of bloody white people, fucking white people, I'm so angry, wasn't I being overcome by hate? Wasn't I now doing what I work so tirelessly and hard to combat. And is it ever okay? And I didn't have those answers. 
So I reached out to a bunch of people that I know who could help me sit with these feelings of discomfort and sit with these feelings of hate and know what I could do with them and allow me to name drop a little bit. So I called former Race Discrimination Commissioner Tim Sukpomasan, the founder of the and the CEO of the Islamophobia Register, Mariam Vezadeh, Antoinette Braybrook, who is the CEO of JIRA, um, and Dr. Katomi Gatwiri, who is a race scholar. She actually started, after Black Lives Matter, she started uh, a therapy clinic specifically for people of colour dealing with racial trauma. And this is what I learnt. That anger isn't necessarily a bad emotion. That we can be angry at inequity. We can be angry at injustice. Because these are issues that make people angry and we should rightfully be angry. So I was like, okay, phew, I'm not that terrible of a person. So what was it that got me so angry? It was the very light touch use of the word terrorist because it was Brenton Tarrant. It was a man who looked too much, who looked too familiar, particularly in a media environment. He looked like those telling our stories. He looked like their friends. He looked like, he just didn't sit, he didn't have a beard. He wasn't black, didn't have a Muslim sounding name. And so he, surely he couldn't be a terrorist or he couldn't be, he couldn't be that bad. So this is me and my family, you say are all my siblings. I grew up in Western Sydney, and this is me as a teenager, if you're wondering which one with the monobrow I am. I'm third from the right at the back. <laughs> and I, I acutely remember the September 11 attacks, and I remember going to school the next day, wanting to, to share my shock and heartbreak and just talk about it with my peers. And before I even got to the classroom, there were boys in my year who called me a dirty Arab and a terrorist. This innocent teenager from Western Sydney was given the label terrorist so freely. Even though, oh God, I have nothing to do with the, the attacks of September 11. Yet, when Australia has a growing neo-Nazi problem, which our, our, uh, our security agencies, which our academics, our researchers, which are well documented, we still fail to call a terrorist a terrorist if they look a certain way. So that, for me, is what triggered my racial trauma. But trauma explains your behaviour, explains a feeling. It doesn't justify any bad behaviour. So yes, my racial, what ticked, my, ticked off my racial trauma in that in, instance, at that time, at the news agency, and then led to these feelings of anger, which probably were tipping over into hate, was this double standard on the use of the label terrorist. But more broadly than race, because sometimes we can hate inequity and it's not just about race. Maybe you're queer, maybe you live with a disability, maybe you advocate for gender equality, maybe you live in Tasmania. Like you, there are valid reasons why you should be frustrated at systemic inequities and what life has dealt you. It's okay to be angry, but anger alone is futile. So what happened to me at that moment then made me assess, what can I do? What can I do with this anger so that it doesn't manifest and that I don't become what I despise and what I see has led to the unfair treatment of minorities for so long? So this is what I've come up with. That the first step is to acknowledge it, that we all have biases, we all discriminate, um, and we need to recognise that in ourselves and then to challenge it when it happens. And when you're unable to challenge it yourself, it's important who you surround yourself with. It's important who your squad is. It's I mean, they don't all have to be that good looking. Um, but it's important to surround yourself with people who, yes, uplift and nourish you, but they also need to challenge you. And then it also gives you the added bonus of being able to name drop, like I did a little bit earlier. But if I didn't surround myself with people who would be able to call me out on behaviour that was harmful to myself and to others, um, then I wouldn't be here today and I wouldn't, I wouldn't have continued the advocacy work that I do. And then the next step is to channel it. What do you do with those feelings of hurt? What do you do with that frustration with inequity? I believe you can subliminate those emotions and that anger into a higher cause. And for me, it's the pursuit of human rights. But it's hard and it's a long game. So self-care is so important. It's tiring. <coughs> And it's also not a solo activity. As much as people like to think, I mean, I like to think I'm pretty awesome, but the wheels will keep turning. 
if I stop or if I step aside or if I take a break. And self-care in this long game is so important. It's something people usually learn when it's too late, when they're burnt out, when they have PTSD or when they can't, when they can't continue or, like that moment, when anger tipped over into hate and you become part of the problem. And a reminder that real change is structural. To the change that's needed is structural. It's needed in our legislation, in our policy, in our institutions of power. I've also vowed that if ever I'm overcome by, by anger and that it renders me immobile and that I lose hope, I will bow out and I will leave the arena because I'm no longer... I'm a, I'm a harm to myself um, and I'm a harm to others. So if you need that endurance, I've come up with a bit of a pro protein shake for advocacy. <laughs> and I do actually do drink proper protein shakes. I do F45. I'm part of like doing F45. <laughs> no, don't laugh. Part of doing F45 is telling everybody you do it. That's part of the, the agreement of the fitness cult. So there you go, you all know. <laughs> One generous scoop of measured optimism. Three heap tablespoons of evidence-based advocacy methods. Two cups of community support and half a cup of self-reflection and growth, 100 grams of self-care, and sometimes you've just got to laugh. Things, you know, you've got to find light in dark places. There is one last ingredient. I might be a little bit biased, but I find it is especially useful. I'll leave you with this. <laughs> That was really good. I can't tell you how many times a week I say, fucking white people. <laughs> As an Indigenous woman, I'm not even kidding, like, all the time. And, and I don't know, when we were growing up, Mum would say, no, that's white kid food, about, like, um, I don't know, was this the same for you, Nadi? If we saw, like, um, kids be eating, well, there's sprinkles, what are they called? Fairy bread? And I'd be like, oh, Mum, can we have fairy bread? She's like, that's white kid food. <laughs> I'm like, all right, I don't know what black kid food was, but... Just Ham and Devon. Anyway. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. That, was, that, that really hit somewhere very, very specifically with me. I think that there is, uh, when we start campaigning to, to rally against something, I think that's a really interesting thing. What, uh, I find this myself. I don't know if this is helpful to anyone else, but I'm going to share what I took away from that. But um, I think sometimes we can find an enemy to make a change, and we go, that's what I'm working towards, breaking down that enemy, uh, instead of working towards something that is a more positive, uh, optimistic thing. We focus on the negative thing that we're trying to get rid of, um, and I think that that can be all-consuming. Um, and there are a lot of things as well, burnout, self-care. Oh, my God, you, you know, I've got a CPAP machine. I haven't slept in years, guys. It's been... <laughs> It's been crazy. Um, no, that, that really hit home for me and, uh, and I really appreciate that. And thank you for being so um, blunt and honest and real as well. Um, and I love Jim Honor Brown. I think you should do it again. Um, <laughs> really soon, I think you should bring it back. Um, our, um, our next speaker uh, is, is the wonderful Nadi Simpson. She's a Yularoy lady uh, and uh, she's a storyteller, originally from Walgett, I believe, uh, and she's living in and working in, in Sydney now. Um, like I said before, I think that storytelling, we're all storytellers. I think we should always take as many opportunities as we can to tell stories, even just telling a story makes you change the perspective on who you are. You get to see the story that you are to other people. Um, and I love... That's, uh, that Nadi gets to show us through song. Uh, she's also got a book uh, called Song of the Crocodile. And um, I just think she looks pretty dead. She's got good fashion. And <laughs> <laughs> so please welcome Nadi Simpson. <laughs> A boomerang spoke to me. Then it picked me up and hurled me into the dreaming. I came upon it in the stores of the Australian Museum, an off-display storage room bristling with cultural objects from all over Indigenous Australia. It was on the shelf amongst items from my country, Uluroi Waliba. I stood in front of them and introduced myself. Yama, I said. I'm Nadi Simpson, daughter of Bubba and Maureen. Granddaughter of Bertha and George, 
great-granddaughter of Florrie and Ernie, Clara and Jack. I live on Gadigal. I'm here to listen and to learn from you. As I spoke, head bowed, eyes shut, concentrating hard on the right things to say, an image came into my mind. Continuous figures swerving in, then out, touching slightly before bouncing away. I tried to ignore it, shake it from my mind. It was a distraction. It was getting in the way of me speaking to the old fellas. You see, cultural material is family. It's made of country and country is alive. Country holds information. It records stories. It archives song. Cultural objects also absorb the dui or heartwood or inside light of its maker as it's being made. A boomerang's use is one thing. Its spirit is another. So when I'd finished talking and opened my eyes and stared at the detail of the boomerangs on the shelf, I saw that the one directly in front of me had a series of etched lines that rolled in and out. The very same pattern I'd just seen. A river flowing from my mind onto the shelf and into the boomerang before me. This is when the boomerang held me for the first time. I picked it up, turned it over. It was from Duddy Wall, Narran Lakes, a special dreaming place. My palms started sweating. I held the boomerang at arm's length. Its wood was dark, its tips fashioned into points. The catalogue tag hung from its centre. I walked it to a desk. When we moved, the tag started flickering twisting in the breeze that came from our movement. That looks like a leaf, thought to myself. Wood, girl, it probably replied, its fingers steadying its grip on me. I sat up at a desk, pen in one hand, boomerang in the other, and waited. I know I tilted my head to the side. I know a voice came into my mind, then began whispering into my ear. I wrote what I heard. Word for word, it unfurled on the paper. Here's a young boy. Strong boy, he green. He blowing in the breeze. Young one, pretty strong, he got things to come. But he got to let go of that mother. He got to go from that mother tree. He got to fly. He got to find a new home now. But he don't want to go. I'm drawing in the sand now. But this one here, that tip, he got to go from here to here, that leaf, see? He got to fly away on that breeze. The river whisper him to go. And he let go, floating down, down, down to the ground. Yeah? You see it then? I'm poking it. That's my story. That's my song, Green Leaf Go. You've got to let go. Old song. That's our song. We give him to you, sitting here. Go on now, go on. Make that song. Sing him up about the leaf and the tree. Mother tree. Mother of me. After the words, another image came. Five men appeared side by side. The one I knew was the storyteller, the man whispering in my ear. He was at the centre of those five. He stared right at me. The boomerang drew me back, readying for launch. Over time, I became obsessed with finding the man who spoke from inside the boomerang. I can be persistent, obsessive, so clues eventually came my way. The first was a photograph, an Aboriginal man in a three-piece suit, soft white curls, 
moustache cascading down his cheeks, with two fingers raised in the air before him. On them was perched a cockatoo. The photo's inscription read, Bulligar Jack, first abo to record on gramophone record, song in abo in English, Angledore, 1900. I knew that was him. I kept following. I wanted to uncover the storyteller, and now I needed to, to find his recorded song. Gradually, more information emerged, articles, references, anthropological notebooks, local histories, station records, store accounts. Bulligar Jack began to breathe again. Guwe Galir, light blood, mweti. Dinawan Dinga, emu meat totem. He worked as a musterer, a tracker, and a drover. Then another picture, this time with unkempt beard and unruly hair, two big trousers with holes in the leg. He leaned on a walking stick and squinted into the sun. He was staring at me again. In this particular picture, Bulligar Jack stands at the centre of a group of five. That boomerang, boomerang rushed me forwards. Then I found a death certificate. Buried Bree Warren Aboriginal Mission Cemetery, 1939. I rang my friend who lives up there, knowledge holder for his people in the Bree Warren community. I blurted out all the bits I'd found, told him about Bulligard Jack, how he spoke to me through a boomerang. I said I wanted to find his song. Said I didn't know why, but this old man was speaking to me. He let me ramble, then slowly said, Nard, you've got to ask yourself, are you looking for the physical Jack or the spiritual Jack? That moment was when the boomerang launched me. I'm flying as we speak, fizzing in deep burrugu, the dreaming, the every when. Right now, standing on Gadigal, speaking Uluroi thoughts, thinking about a man that spoke to me through an object and at the mercy of a talking boomerang that throws people around space and time. I won't try to pull the threads of this yarn together. I can't. It happened to me, but I'm not the boss. I'm not the author. I don't make the decisions. I'm not the composer in charge of the scale. And I like that because it means I am the song. I am the story. I am the one that's hurling through Borogu, curving through time, soaking in the actions of all those around me, whether they make sense to me or not. I am the boomerang because I am held. I am thrown, I will return, and I will be caught. It was on a day, just like any other day, when he whispered in my ear, Heard the message, his words loud and strong Through the days and through the years Giving me a clue to his secret In the words of a song Staring as he let the other Inviting me to come along And now I'm looking for a man Top and tail bird on his hand One piece at a time Bully for 
Now I smell the dust of the cattle that you drove along the plains. Feel the warmth of the fires that you rode ahead and made. Faint echoes of the past from a ghost that's haunted me. Gonna find out who you are, and you can set me free. Now I'm looking for a man, top and tail, but on his hand, one piece at a time. Bully Garford, the leader of the fight. Searching for old man Jack, cover the dirty, don't leave no track. On the case of that old man, I'm coming to find you. Searching for old man Jack, cover the dirty, don't leave no track. On the case of that old man, I'm coming to find you. <coughs> Drove in, mustering, cattle hands, much I had a bit of a cry um that was really special thank you so much for sharing it I think um I don't I don't know uh if anybody else if that hit anybody else quite as hard as it did to me but just um remembering that uh sometimes our identity journey is very spiritual and spirituality is very individual and um we don't have to question elements of that I know that was a big thing for me finding my identity and hearing that mirrored in your story was very, yeah, sorry, I didn't expect to cry. Um, I would, uh, I was going to tell you my story of it, of it happened to me, um, but we have run out of time. Um, and so I will just very, very, very quickly say that uh, I'm a, uh, I'm an Indigenous stand-up comedian and um, every story that's been told here this afternoon has, um, echoed something really important for me. Um, and I'm going to, in the shortest amount of time that I can, explain what I mean by that. I originally studied law. I dropped out. Um, I was very unhappy, very depressed, very anxious. I ended up doing comedy as a dare. I did well, <laughs> literally. Um, after a couple of times, I won a competition and was like, oh, I'm not crap at this. Um, I started doing comedy. I was driven entirely by wanting to help my people, but after not so long, that wasn't just about helping my people, it was about identifying a problem, which made it very, very, very negative, which means that when I finally did that one big thing that I wanted to achieve in my career, and I got a special, I alienated a lot of people from my own community because the edgy words that I was trying to use to make white people, fucking white people, listen, uh, alienated my own people. And it was the hardest lesson I have ever had to learn. I was always run by the most purest of intentions and all of a sudden it wasn't understood that those were what my intentions were. And instead of going, oh, people just don't get it, I went, no, 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 I'm no longer progressive. I'm not being progressive in the way that I want to. I found an angry way to get my point across. And I've now taken a bit of a step back and I'm assessing what it means to be a storyteller. And humour's always been the way that I've been a storyteller, but that doesn't suit me right now because right now I'm very sensitive. And at the same time that that happened, I was 
leaving an abusive relationship with a man, um, domestic violence, coercive control, and my career was in the best place that it could possibly be, and yet I was fucking terrified. And as soon as it finished, everything was threatened. My entire my life, my career, everything was threatened. It was the worst time of my life. And yet everything was going really well to everybody else. I had my first TV show that I ever did. It was Total Control. And the strangest thing that has ever happened to me happened. I went on set and I met a woman and had a, an attraction to a woman, which I had never had before. And I was like, that's weird, but didn't think much of it. Um, anyway, I now have a girlfriend, which is weird. Um, and, and it's not because I'm attracted to women. It's not because I'm attracted to men. It's because I couldn't give a shit. <laughs> I just couldn't. Like, nothing, there is nothing that is predictable. It's why I'm like, yeah, I don't do comedy as much as I used to do before because the ideas that I had about it before don't suit me as much as they do right now. It doesn't feel like the right place. I'm looking for a way to, to build context. I'm looking for a way to tell a story in the softest, gentlest way because that's who I really am as a person. So now I'm writing and I'm acting and I've started a company that's called First Nations Talent Agency. That's why we need to talk, and you and I. And, um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and this is the quickest that I can do it. But basically, uh, I have always had this thing where when I was young, I was like, this is what I want to do, this is how I'm going to get there. And at some point I went, I have no idea what I'm doing, I'm just going to float around. And, uh, and then as soon as I forgot that, bam, it happened again. And now I'm flying with my, uh, my, my totems of kookaburra. And um, at the moment, the kookaburra is carrying me. And um, this was one of the coolest events I've ever been a part of. Um, and I'm just so grateful that you all listened intently and, and took things on board. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I ain't got no idea. All I know is that I don't give a shit. And as long as I'm authentic about it, you know what I mean? <laughs> That's all that you can do. The most generous thing that you can ever do in the world is be the truest version of you. And, um, and thanks so much, guys. See you later. Watch Talks from Antidote 2022 on stream, the streaming platform from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching at stream.sydneyoperahouse.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon with more ideas at the house.